everybody. Today we have a very special episode. I bring on my good friend Chandler Rowe. You guys have uh, already met him a few times on the podcast, but as Jamal says, uh, now he's going for the trifecta. The triple crown. <laughs> he's got in his group episode. He's got in his episode with me and Michael. And now he gets his solo edition. So Chandler, how you feeling today? Glad to be back. Glad to be back. Uh, just laughing from the, the feedback I've gotten from the last episode. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, there's definitely a lot of um, a lot of statements that were, that were said in the episode that uh, didn't make a lot of people happy. But on the Black Lives, we pride ourselves on being a platform where all opinions are heard um, and being in our and have the ability to be expanded upon. So, you know, um, it's been a crazy week for us. It has been a crazy week, a very good week. Um, yeah, I did. I did not see my week ending with meeting five Black Panthers and the son of Marcus Garvey. So, yeah, it's crazy, bro. I'm, things like this and weeks like this and events like this show me how how blessed I am to go to this school. Yeah, you know, and like I was saying to you yesterday, how blessed I am to have switched from minoring in communications to minoring in African American studies because I wouldn't have been able to I wouldn't have even known about these opportunities if I didn't minor in African American studies because a lot of these things that I figured out about was because I was in class and my teacher said we're having this event and also just going to African American studies mixers um, I wouldn't have figured it out and it makes me kind of sad that I, I wish more our students knew about this stuff because I feel like if they knew about these events you know like with dr garvey coming yesterday i feel like more people would, would show up you know um but it's just truly it was truly an honor to meet him yesterday that was actually very surreal bro no most definitely yeah i was i was actually i was starstruck it's crazy it was crazy uh yeah it definitely doesn't feel real um you can't get this anywhere else but Howard. You can't, That's bro. the beauty of it. You can't. You can't get it anywhere else. So, and not only that, but just the, just the overall vibe of it. Because I feel like at other institutions, it might be kind of watered down. They might not be as real. I'm talking about white institutions. It might be watered down, and the message will be would be distorted. Not saying if he came to an institution like that, the message would be distorted, but the overall vibe, you know, because, you know, when we around each other, we keep it real because yeah, you ain't, you ain't losing no, no, no corporate money. There's no, there's no corporate money involved or no, no outside things. And you're not trying to offend nobody and make anybody feel uncomfortable in a black space. You know, you, you keep it black, you know? So I think that's one of the, that's one of the beauty, one of the beauties about, um, events like that was there was there anything that he said to you or he just said that really resonated with you heavily uh, well first I would say um, he, he listens like uh, <clears throat> I remember we were going uh, to get our book signed and take a picture and then as he was talking he would take whatever conversation that 
whatever happened in the conversation, he personalized the book signing to every person. He did. So we all have our own unique book signing. Like I don't even have to put my name on this book because it's already it's already written. Um, so that was cool. Thanks. Um, and then an, an excerpt from his book. I just man, it's got me. It's got me. Um, so it reads: We must give up that silly idea of holding our hands and waiting upon God to do everything for us. If God intended that, He would not have given us a mind. He would not have given us intelligence. He would not have given us his soul. He would not have placed us here in the midst of creation and surrounded us with all the beautiful things of nature. Whatsoever you want in life, you must make up your mind to do it for yourself and accomplish it for yourself. Whether it be rearing a home, expanding an empire if you want to do it, you must do it for yourself and then God will bless the effort because he will realize that you are using your intelligence for the best. So yeah, that was, that was pretty big. Why that quote? Uh, I think every person comes to a point in their life where they have to take like their path in life into their own hands, like take responsibility and accountability mm-hmm. for what they want to do, um, what goals they want to reach, and how they want to get there. Uh, so being able to hear that was like encouragement if you will mm-hmm. it's like sometimes that's not going to be a comfortable process like you have to get outside of your comfort zone uh, so yeah I think it's um, a lot of people say get out of, get out of your comfort zone you gotta get out in order to become who you want to be but I really don't feel like people understand how hard it is to get out of your comfort zone actually like yeah. actually doing it in your life <laughs> you mean you know because humans are beings and creatures of habit Everything that we do is because of something that we've done before. So when you try to do something different, it's scary. It's, it's it goes against it goes against your own personalized nature. And I think that I think you actually have to be conscious about what you're doing if you want to get out of your comfort zone. You actually have to, you have to plan it out. You're not just gonna do it just by going through the motions of life. Yeah. Yeah. In the Marine Corps, they call it comfort-based decisions. Whenever you just, uh, either out of habit or just like being lazy, just choose the easiest route or the path of least resistance just because, um, yeah. Like I, I've seen the most growth in the past year than I have like the rest of my life. And it's, it's just from getting out of my comfort zone, just putting myself out there, so. What what do you think started that path to you getting out of your comfort zone? Uh, kind of kind of breaking out of the cycle, if you will. Like I remember, I played basketball in high school, and I came to Howard, and I'd be finished with class every day at eleven. Mm-hmm. So like eleven a.m. Yeah, eleven a.m. What? I had class from eight to eleven every day, pretty much, the- roughly. Are you serious? Yeah, first semester. Well, let me tell you that back. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it was 8 to 11. Oh, you talking about in college or high school? Yeah, in college. Oh, okay, college. I thought you were talking about high school. Oh, no, no, no. I, no. I, was, I, was, I was about to say, bro, what type of school did you go to? Uh, but no, so, uh, yeah, I would get out of class and then just be wondering, like, what do I, what am I supposed to do? Because, like, in high school, we have school all day. Yep. Practice at the end of the day. Yep. You get home, it's like, you eat, 
might do some homework, go to sleep, <laughs> and repeat. It's the life of a high school athlete. Uh, yeah, so. And then I was I went to an all-boys school at that, so the social dynamic was completely different. Um, so this was actually after I met y'all, second semester. This was right before spring break. I was looking in the mirror, and I just, it was a person who I didn't recognize I was looking back. I was like, I gotta change something. I gotta change something. So that's that's really where the process to today started. Man, it's crazy. It really sometimes all it takes is just one look in that mirror. Yeah. To actually want to change your life. I I was kind of the same it's kind of the same thing for me. I honestly stories are kind of similar in the sense to comparing I compared myself to my high school version as well. But I was like, I don't want to be that person anymore. Mm-hmm. Because after first semester of college, you know, I, I came back. I always tell this story about how I decided I wanted to change myself and, and start to like start to go to the gym, start working out more. I was, it was December 31st, 2019. I had, I was outside because I was doing uh, New Year's stuff, trying to get ready, you know, getting a haircut, just doing errands and stuff like that. And everybody who I saw that day made a reference to my size. Not not in like a not in like a in a derogatory way, but just like, oh hey, what's up, Big Joe, you know, that's a, a big guy right there. <laughs> big Joey. You know? This and, is this is freshman year? Yeah. Okay. And and it's like when people say that stuff to me now, I I don't really care because like, cause I'm how I look now is I'm, I'm more comfortable within myself but at that point I wasn't and from that moment I was like I'm done being big bro I'm tired of this I'm not alignment anymore I'm not in high school I don't need yeah. to be this I can't rationalize being this size anymore because that's why I rationalized it in high school <laughs> I was like I'm alignment I have to be big I can eat whatever I want because I'm alignment that's my duty to my football team you know when even looking back at it now, that philosophy was so stupid because I would have been way better if I had prioritized my health and, and didn't just eat whatever. <laughs> you know? But, you know, as humans, we're going to try to rationalize whatever we want to do. And coming into spring semester, um, around the time I met you, it's crazy. Like, for the whole time I've known you in my life, I've always been progressing towards, towards change. I wasn't really like that before. First semester, I went to the gym like once. <laughs> the whole semester I went to the gym once bro I was just I was just on some BS bro I was on some BS but I started making that positive um, change in my life and I I'm sure you can attest to the same thing like once you start making one type of change the dominoes start to fall they do they do and it's it's not all definitely not all at once and it's definitely not um a consistent experience like there's bumps in the road for sure right like when I even when I first started uh, I was working out most days but like the volume was so low and it's like ah I don't want to run I know I, I know I needed to run keep in mind I haven't I've never ran for like distance or anything I haven't ran outside of basketball mm. and so I was supposed to be training to run a three-mile race in under under 24 minutes so I was like oh you know I think I can do that so I just never ran when I was at home 
And then I got a rude awakening when I got up here, and then I had to start taking the test for the three mile. Mm. And that was the first time I ever ran three miles. And I was, when I got back to my apartment, I just passed out. I was like, man, I just, I'll wash my sheets tonight. I just, I need to sleep. In a way, when was that? This was first semester junior year. First semester junior year. Yeah. In which which program was that with? Uh, the Marines. The Marines. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that was kind of like a wake up call. Like, okay, if this is really what I want, I need to actually like devote time and effort to it. So I started doing that, and even though I might not, like, even now, um, I need to get back into shape, but. Uh, I'm at a point where now, like, I know what I'm capable of, and I can get back there. But I'm also like prioritizing my mental health as well. I think that's a really big part of it too. Right, you gotta prioritize yourself because I always say this to people: you you can't be your best self in this world if if if, it, if things are not right internally. Yeah. You know, so I feel like anybody you gotta find something that 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 makes you happy to where you don't have to depend on others for it. You know things like for me it can be working out reading watching a watching an educational or informative video that, that motivates me or just increases my my intellectual capabilities so i think everybody needs those forms but i want to ask like well, with you joining the marines what was there anything hard about doing that because i know or was there any like, outside pressure that made you not wanna join or or just, like what is it what is what was the thought process like all right i wasn't like i want to be a marine i'm about to do this like, how, how do you come to that because i know that this isn't like that that's definitely getting out of your comfort zone for sure yeah yeah uh it's funny <clears throat> i never thought about it until i started to think about joining the marines um i have a, like a lot of marines in my life i just as it is like my pastor, who just retired, he was a Marine. Mm-hmm. Um, like, several people in my church are Marines. I have a cousin who's a Marine. Uh, so they were always around. Okay. Um, but when it came to making the decision, honestly, that's a good question because if we were on campus sophomore year, I might have done Air Force. Mm. I might have done Air Force. Uh, but after not being on campus and then uh, like doing my research and seeing like, okay, Air Force, I could probably do that okay right now and be fine. But Marines, like, I'm gonna have to work for that. Yeah, I'm gonna have to work harder for it, but it's gonna mean more when I do get it. Uh, so def- the, the challenge definitely motivated me. Like the exclusivity of being able to say like, I'm a Marine, but not only am I, am I a Marine, but I get to lead Marines too. The few, the proud. The few and the proud. Man, that's that's so admirable, bro. Tell me about, tell the audience about the things that you were doing this summer. Whew. <laughs> when, I, when I asked you that, I asked to see your face. Turn, so. <laughs> hey, they say change is uncomfortable. Um, man. That was an experience. I'll never forget. Uh, and even though it didn't turn out positive, well, as positive as it could be, like I still laugh about it to this day. Um, yeah, I mean it was it was surreal. 
Cause you know, I used to look up videos or whatever, look up graduation videos, and you see the parade deck. That parade deck's probably like a quarter mile stretch of just asphalt. Um, and then coming in, like seeing like a platoon with their rifles marching, mm -hmm. passing the parade deck, it was like, whoa, like, I'm actually here. Like, it's been so long, like, since that moment in the Drew bathroom mirror to this point, like, <laughs> man, I'm finally here. Uh, so kind of in shock. And then the first week is really pretty chill, honestly. Like, it's, it's nothing. I, <laughs> it's just administrative stuff. So, like, you'll go to medical. Uh, you'll pick up gear. You'll learn, like, the, the child hall procedures, which mm -hmm. is just uh, slang, military slang for the cafeteria. Um. Yeah, outside of that, and you just you get used to the schedule of everything. So like waking up, um, like four thirty, I guess. Lights at five, and go to sleep. Lights at nine, at nine o'clock. Um, yeah, and then Saturday, which is called pickup day. That's where you actually meet um, your instructors. So, what people usually uh, associate with drill instructors is the same thing. That was, it was good and bad. It was good because there was this sense of like impending doom, just like anxiety, like, oh, can't wait till pickup day. Um, and then once it happens, it's like, you don't even get a chance to really process it. Like things are moving so fast, people are yelling at you. It's crazy. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's more as expected of you, but it's not like right out the gate. They're like, they want everything. Like, yeah, you're an officer candidate. Like, you want to be an officer, so we're going to expect that from you. But we're not going to hold you accountable for something that we didn't tell you already. So that was really, this, this cycle was just. That's interesting. I like that. Yeah. They'll teach us something. Like, literally, we might learn, like, land navigation so we'll go to class on it then right after class we'll go outside maybe demo it maybe a prac app later that night and then like later that week we'll go have a like an actual exam for it and then from that point on you're expected to know land navigation like it's just understood right or like uh let's see i guess customs and courtesies like yeah, maybe like the first day or two, maybe you might get a, get away with something, quote unquote. But like end of the cycle, like it's just expected for you to know that stuff. Like if you do something wrong, it was because <laughs> sometimes you just do it wrong and you really don't know what you did or how like why you did it. So you, uh, you refer to yourself in the third person, and so you say this cannon does not know. And then after a certain point, they're like. Not knowing is not an acceptable answer. So what happens if you don't know? You come up with something, or um, you disciplinary action. So like, you'll have to either write an essay or you get a chip, which is basically like um, explaining what you did wrong or whatever, or why you did was what was why what you did was wrong, and then you get a chance to explain it, um, and then that goes on your file. 
Mm. Yeah. It goes on your file. So, wow. so what if if your explanation is good? Does that change anything? Oh no. Uh, you just have to explain why. Yeah, you just have to, it's, it's it's already going on your file. Why do you put something or not? But okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But the the reason there's a box for you. Um, it's so like if you get called to the board, so there's two different boards. You have a company board, and then you go to the board, which is with the commanding officer of OCS. Mm -hmm. So um, if you, so like for me, my leadership grade fell below the uh, minimum of 80. So first I go to the company board and um, meet with them and then before I even meet with them, they'll like read through my files and stuff. They'll read what I put for everything on my shits and my essays and then use that to kind of segue into the meeting. Um, and then same thing with the commanding officer board. They'll use all of the all the paperwork and stuff like that. And then that'll like help them make a decision on your mm. future, stuff like that. So if, if I didn't like put anything in my papers, I'd probably just been kicked out and that would have been it. Right. Yeah. And it's a combination of like what you put on the paper and then what the staff says about you too. Okay. Yeah. And how do you be looked at favorably favorably amongst the staff? Just be a good dude. Be loud. Uh just have effort. That sounds like a cult. It is a cult. <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I thought it was, when you were talking, I thought something that really resonated with me was they they don't hold you accountable for things that they didn't already ask you to do. Mm -hmm. I thought that was profound just because I feel like that is one of the biggest aspects of leadership in general in life. When, it, when people ask me to hold them, I only hold people accountable for things in my life for things that they said that they were going to do. I'm not going to... If, if I have a friend who says they want to read more um, and they told that to me, I'm going to hold them accountable and be like, hey, like, you've been reading or the same thing for working out. But I'm not, I'm not going to do that. If my friend never expressed interest in reading and working out, then I'm not going to force them or I'm not I never I'm force them to do anything. I'm not going to try to hold them accountable for that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the biggest things about leadership, like holding people accountable for things that they said they were going to do and also holding people accountable for things that that you would do yourself yeah all the people who are asking you to do that stuff they all have done them things themselves you know i think that's another big aspect of leadership you know i think and, that, and that's what dr garvey he was saying that um yesterday he was saying and that's i wrote it down because it was just it's some it's something that those are traits and character traits that i aspire to live by and just I can't ask anybody to do something that I wouldn't do myself. Yeah. And I think that's gonna, that can be a flaw in a lot of leaders, you know, you asking everybody to do things that, you, that you've either never done before or things that you're too lazy to do, you know? So I definitely, I definitely think that's very cool that you were able to work with, not work, but just be with the Marines this, yeah. this summer. Um, what do you think is the biggest lesson of leadership that you learned this summer? Ooh. Just one, if I had to, I would say accountability. 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 Um, 
just for yourself, because especially um, like when it comes to image and how you represent yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, like actually, I'm wearing a do rag now, but um, like I wear a hat over my do rag, or I just won't wear a do rag at all outside. Or why not? Uh, it's just a do rag has a certain image, and it's not an image that I want to portray. Right. For myself. Um, and then really for the Marine Corps, I can't say like, oh yeah, I'm going to the Marines and then be wearing a do-rag outside. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really, the two don't match up. Um, image is important. Image is very important. Um, and so even with small stuff, like if I say I'm going to do something like, I'm going to do it at like when I can, or if I can't, like I'm going to make sure I can. Like even, like I told you, you sent me your final paper, I was like, I'm gonna re- I can't read it right now, but I'm gonna read it. Yeah, I appreciate you reading that because yeah. I just I I forgot I sent you that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then when you text me, uh, you read it. I'm like, okay. Yeah, that was um. I wrote about deindustrialization in the United States. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, I swear, I think about deindustrialization all the time, bro. Because <laughs> it's something that I was never taught, bro. Yeah, we were. I was never taught, and you never, you never really talk about it for that. But continue what you were saying, though. Yeah, um, I don't say accountability. Just, yeah. just because um, when you're in the military, uh, you're dealing with people's lives at the end of the day. Right. So you have to be accountable. Like, I don't, I don't want to have to go to the family of somebody that's under my command and have to explain how I got their son or daughter killed. So it's like, okay, if I can be accountable with a human life, I, I can be accountable with everything else. Life is the most important thing on this planet, so, yeah. No, bro, that's, that's so fast, just holding yourself accountable. Cause like, I mean, like I was saying, you can't hold others accountable if you can't be accountable within yourself. Yeah. Um, like Dr. Another thing Dr. Carvey said, um, change and transformation starts from within. Only, only can you can only change others if you make that change within yourself first. Yeah, um, that, that represents a bravery, um, integrity, just principles of leadership that I definitely stand by. But um, I didn't want to transition into more of your your upbringing, uh, being being from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Mm. Um, I definitely wanted to start this segment off with us being in D.C. right now. What are some of the biggest differences between being in Washington, D.C. versus growing up or just being in Baton Rouge? It's definitely a driving city. Uh, Like in D.C., you can catch the bus or train anywhere. Public transportation is not as much of a thing. It's it's, it's not as much of a thing. Uh, Like I live 15 minutes from my middle school, 20 minutes from my high school, like 20 minutes from my church. Um, and that's that's like normal. That's actually a little bit short of a commute. Like everything is driving. Uh, the winters definitely aren't as harsh. It doesn't get as cold for the most part. And it's definitely not windy. Mm. Definitely not windy. But the flip side to that is when it gets hot, it gets hot. Right. And it gets humid. In the deep south, yeah. <laughs> um, 
And with humidity comes the mosquitoes, man. Mosquitoes are a real thing. I don't know. I've experienced that out here um, in the summer. In the summer and in the late spring. That, that stuff be pissing me off. <laughs> I actually I actually hate that stuff. And the mosquitoes be so annoying, bro. Being from the West Coast, I'm not really I'm not really used to um, the variances in weather. Like back home in California, our weather is pretty much the same the whole year. Obviously, it'll get a little hotter in the summer and then a little colder in the winter. But it's not it's not something to where you really have to make a heavy change in your wardrobe, especially in San Francisco. Like you can wear a hoodie all year, oh, man. And, and you're just chilling. Yeah, so it could be like cold one day then hot the next right but it, in, San, in the San, in San Francisco it does get windy though it gets windy in the bay it, the bay has like, like you, you know you're not gonna be wearing a shirt outside like, and you're not gonna be wearing a shirt at night you know it's, it's going it's gonna get a little windy you, you definitely gonna feel that you know the Pacific is right there the Pacific <laughs> yes, sir. yes sir um have you noticed any differences in the people being from Baton Rouge versus being in being on the east coast oh yeah um, it's generally more friendly, more back home. Yeah, back home. Uh, more welcoming. Just, I'm I'm talking about people that aren't even black. Like it doesn't even matter, you know, where they come from, what ethnicity, or right. anything like that. Um, just generally more open. Um, at least on the front. I mean, some people are really genuine like that, but uh, that's what I say for people. Mm, that's that's very interesting to me. I've I've been trying to understand why. Why are people nicer in in southern regions compared to the East Coast? Um, I've I, I kind of feel like it's a weather thing. You think so? A, a little bit. I think. Uh, that's not that's not the complete factors, but definitely the East Coast gets colder, and it's not as much sunlight. And as in sunlight plays a big role on your mood, and I feel like the it, it is it sunny a lot in the South, yeah. in Baton Rouge, yeah. yeah. Like I've noticed that out here, in my own mood, not not how I treat people, but just how I overall feel. In the winter months in DC, bro, that stuff is depressing, bro. <laughs> no, it is. <laughs> That stuff is actually depressing as hell. Yeah. You know, um, like, with daylight savings time ending in that period and the sun setting at, like, 4 o'clock. Yeah. I, I genuinely hate that. And I hate it because my birthday is literally right in the beginning of that time period. And it's always dark. And it's super cold. And it's just very, it's just very gloomy. And I definitely feel like that could impact a lot of people's moods, especially in a place like, and I, I don't know, maybe there has to be other factors to that, though. I feel like maybe everybody being like all trapped, not not trapped, but condensed more in East Coast cities, that might play a role into it compared to the South where you told me everything is a lot more spread out. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about weather. That's a good point. Um, I just think it's just the culture that derived from like how those different regions started out like in the south is, is, I mean it's still very small like 
it's not uncommon to see like two or three people that you know or just go out and you have like no intention of seeing anybody like I'm just going to the store you might see somebody you know so it's a lot it's a lot smaller where like up here you could see somebody you might never see them again that's right so you have to like rely on people a lot more and then people know people people talk it's a small town so right yeah it's a lot definitely a lot more community um growing up growing up in the city I definitely have noticed that that lack of community sometimes like you would kind of think since it's more people living in a condensed space they would be closer but that's not really how it hasn't always gone and that's that's for me you know other people back home they they might have had different experiences but but for me growing up it hasn't always been like that um yeah, bro, that's pretty interesting. Baton Rouge. I, I, I need to pull up, man. You gotta pull up. You got some good food, man. <laughs> I, I need to pull up. I need to pull up. Man. Um, I also want to talk about what you had told me the other day when you were talking about the knee-jerk reaction. Because when, when, I, when I first met Chandler freshman year, Chandler was a, was a hardcore... Raging... <laughs> A hardcore raging conservative but he has really um, turned 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 a leaf and I, I don't like to and I and when I say turn a leaf I don't I don't mean he went from Republican to Democrat because over here on the black Lotus, we don't we don't mess with any party you know we don't <laughs> we don't mess with any political party just because we know they're they're two separate arms in the same body of white supremacy but talk to me about that that ideological journey from from kind of how do I how do I explain it? Just becoming woke. Becoming yeah, be, becoming woke. <laughs> yeah, just explain that. Explain that, bro. Um. Uh, so really, I wasn't I wasn't very involved, or um, I don't want to say interested in politics, but it, it, it wasn't something that, that really captured my attention mm-hmm. to a certain degree. Um, just because I, I, I was a kid. I was playing basketball, going to school. Like, that was my life. Um, I even had, man, I even had the Barack Obama presidential uh, election beanie. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what happened to it. Yeah, it used to be my favorite being the X-Ray at the school sometimes. But um, I don't really remember ever even like being remotely interested in politics specifically. I was always kind of a history guy. But politics... Yeah, me too. Oh, man. History Channel was something different. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> but... uh. Yeah, not, really not until the, the 2016 election was when I kind of started to look things up. kind of started to research a little bit. Because uh, for background, I went to a all-boys, predominantly white Catholic school. And I think most people would be, would trend to the conservative side. So around the election time, it was very, it wasn't uncommon to hear, like, different people talk about different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and around that time, I was still in like the old oh, Democrat. This, so pe- that's what we do, I guess. You know. It's, it's, <laughs> and um, so I remember I was registered to vote, and 
I was about to drive to the polling station and my mom was like, um, if you don't know who to vote for, just vote for a Democrat. Like, just vote for a Democrat. I don't know, that, that just... The, the, curi the curious part of me was just like, why? That's what the critical thinker does. He asks the question, yeah. why? And I feel like that's... I guess we can do a little aside. I feel like that's kind of demonized, especially, in, uh, I can say for sure, in the black community. Like, uh, a parent will tell us to do something, and we'll be like, why? They say, because I said so. Facts. It's like, maybe, like, even the Marine Corps, they'll tell us why we do something and then like how you do it and all that kind of stuff so you know the reasoning behind it and you know the importance of it so I think it's dogmatic yeah I think that would that would go a long way um, in parenting but yeah I just started to, to research in uh, Donald Trump more specifically because that was like the the um, where all the personal attacks were going mm-hmm and uh, that was kind of where I started to train. It was 2016, was what? No, sophomore year? Our sophomore year of high school, yeah. So over like the next two years, I started to get really into like conservative media. Mm -hmm. uh, let me think of who. Not so much Ben Shapiro. I, did, I never really cared for his delivery. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really take a liking to him. Why didn't you like his delivery? They just talk too fast. Okay. Like sometimes I don't. When somebody talks too fast, it's like they're either trying to get something over on you or like they're trying to sneak stuff in there. I don't know. It's just. Mm, okay. I don't know. I just didn't really care for it, and it didn't seem very like personable, as well. Um, like I could I could read a book and. <laughs> it kind of seemed like he was just regurgitating information. Yeah. No, it's just. It was like he was just. Robotic in his communication. Mm, okay. Like I could, I feel like I could read a book and get the same kind of feeling that I got from listening to Ben Shapiro. Exactly. Okay. Um, I will say definitely freshman year, like senior into senior year, freshman year of college. Michael Knowles is pretty big. He's a Catholic guy. Mm -hmm. He smokes cigars. He's he's really pretty. He's pretty. He's pretty funny too. I gotta give him that. Um, and then another guy, Matt Walsh. He's kind of. I guess become a little bit more well known just because of the um, the gender thing. Like, there's only two genders, stuff like that. Um, but they're both like people that aren't far off from my own background. Just like people who grew up in the church. Maybe they're either Christian or Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, like even though we didn't share the same skin color, or whatever, like our experiences weren't like vastly different from what I could tell. Right. So I kind of took a liking to it. And um, whew, I would say the biggest shift for me ideologically happened over COVID because that just exposed like it wasn't even like a red versus blue thing. It was just like the government versus the people. Right. Um, so that's when I started watching like uh, Young Rebel 59. So he's a he's actually an anarcho capitalist. Um, anarcho capitalist. Anarcho capitalist. Um, I guess like to put him under an umbrella, he'd be libertarian. Okay. Um, so I started to get a lot more into that, and then 
from there it was just like learning the truth <laughs> learning learning real history learning because uh, like before I was like oh no systemic racism doesn't exist like what we all get the same opportunities like we just have to bootstrap we just have to bootstrap um, and that could be true on some level I think we do need to like um, the work by Dr. Garvey said we have to take our destiny into our own hands but at the same time um, we have to acknowledge that there is systemic uh, racism right um, baked into the system baked in cooked in yeah a lot of the primary ingredients. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, from there, I just kind of... who Did you find Sarge? Or did I find Sarge? You found Sarge. Man. You you, you sent me, uh, I think, the... It was a dog video. The, the circular arguments. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even... Yeah, it was most of... I'm going to say... A lot of my knowledge has come from just watching YouTube videos, because it's it's easy to switch from like one viewpoint to another, read comment sections, find different viewpoints, people right. discussing things, people disagreeing, yeah, um, people giving just like feedback and alternating opinions. Yeah, it's very, it's it's very easy to um, to get new things from from YouTube. Yeah, and so um, I don't even know how he how his video popped up. I was like. This was interesting. I'll, I'll check it out. Because mm-hmm. uh, during this time, I was I was just trying to take in as much information as I could. I wasn't like pigeonholed into a philosophy or an ideology. I was just like, let me get all the information so I can make a more informed decision right. for myself. Like Dr. Garvey said. Yeah. And um, I guess, what was that? A year? A year and a half ago? I never looked back. I actually... I'm just thinking of it now. I almost started a conservative organization on campus. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't, but I almost did. I don't want to say I'm glad I didn't. My ideology has changed so much since then, like, it wouldn't feel right now saying it, but back then I was like, we we really need this, this organization on campus, just to have a different viewpoint. Right. So, yeah. How... When you say you were close, like how how close were you? Not terribly close. Um, like I didn't have a, a faculty member that would um, sponsor it. Mm-hmm. But like I, the the organization is called YAF, which is Young Americans for Freedom. <laughs> uh, I, I assume you know about them just from that reaction. I I I don't know about them, but just <laughs> the name is. <laughs> It's just, it's just funny. Yeah, it's, it's very... <laughs> like that, like that being a Howard list. It's very chauvinist, for sure. Um, but yeah, like they've had... Actually, Michael Knowles came to speak in D.C. at GW. Mm. And I wanted to go. And I just... Oh, man, I missed that. So I had to catch it on YouTube the next day. But um, they've had, like... I think Ronald Reagan is um, affiliated with them. For real? Yeah, Ben Shapiro's affiliated with them. There's a few like conservative, I mean, a few prominent conservative figures affiliated with them, and um, yeah, that was. You would have been, um, you would have been crucified. Yeah, I'd... if if you started that, if if your name 
I was connected to that, that would have been at Howard. That would have been that would have been crazy. A lot of people might not have even joined it out of fear. Out of fear. You know. The bystander effect. Yeah, bro. Like nobody wants to. Nobody wants to, especially at this school. Nobody wants to do things on, until they're cool, or uh, until everybody else is doing them. You know. So it's it's so interesting how you how you said you came to the changing ideology through COVID. Because I that's kind of how it was for me too, and I wouldn't say I changed my my ideology. I just got deeper into what I that's what I had known before, because. Prior to COVID, I had like a lot of, I'll say like surface level knowledge. I, I wouldn't even say surface level because I've always I've always cared more about history, way more than the average person. I've, I've always known like a lot more, but I really wasn't putting it together from like a critical thinking yeah. point of view. And when I, when I was talking about making improvements on my life and the domino effect, I feel like educating myself was one of those dominoes that that fell just because. In my effort to improve myself, I became obsessed with trying to improve my mind as well. So, I remember, what, what book was it? Um, it was one of the first, one of the first black books that that I started reading. Um, I think it was, it was about post-traumatic slave syndrome. Was it Carter Woodson? No, no, no. It was, I can't remember the author, but it was like, my, my uncle gave me the book, um, and it was, it was just in my library and my bookshelf, so I was like, let me, let me start reading the books that I actually have. Um, so I started reading um, that book, and it really just kind of opened my eyes to just a lot of the effects of slavery that are still on us. And reading the information, it was so enlightening, because a lot of the things were like, Things that I that I understood, it wasn't completely new information to me. But just actually seeing that information in front of my face helped me just want to grow as a as an intellectual, and not and not and that plus with you know taking intro African American studies courses, which I which I was doing that semester, just added on to my interest in the overall in overall Black study mm-hmm. and. I'm definitely very grateful that I just picked up that book, you know, because how like all the knowledge that I that I have now and, and what I'm trying to grow my knowledge into is a big part of who I am. And not only just does it help me know more things from a black perspective, but it helps me understand things more from a human perspective and just having the the, the capacity to actually want to learn new things is something that I feel like is going to help me for the rest of my life. So I'm definitely, definitely very grateful to have picked up that book and that I was able to keep reading and educating myself. Um, I definitely want to give a shout out to Dr. Claude Anderson. His books definitely really helped open, really open my third eye for real um, about you know, black people working together and and how the black condition post integration isn't as squeaky clean as they pointed out, you know. I'm sure a lot of the conservative outlets that's that you were watching, they were they were definitely saying things like, 
oh, black people, you guys have civil rights now. Like, it shouldn't be uh, a problem. And, and if that's not, if, if, and if that's not what they were saying, definitely something that has been insinuated by a lot of conservatives. Um, just because, because now that y'all have civil rights, everything else is gonna be should be squeaky clean and easy when that hasn't been the fact. Um, I mean, this country is about the economics, man. Like, obviously, the rights the rights are extremely important, but when it comes to the condition of, of, of the black race, a lot of these issues are, are economic problems. It's not, it's not always because, because we lack um, the rights. Because, I mean, we've, we've had the rights now for, for so long, and there hasn't been enough enough progress and change and it's the same reason for why in the 1960s a lot of people in northern and western cities they was they was so mad because yeah the civil rights movement and what mlk was doing it, it worked in the south because it accomplished what they needed they couldn't even vote yeah they didn't even have rights but then you you, you go to oakland chicago new york san francisco you see all these people still struggling you know they they being pushed into into slums and projects which still exist today still exists you know and it just it it irks me because I feel like a lot of people don't ask the question of why enough of why are are, are people in these conditions because they didn't just happen like a lot of people like to insinuate Oh, black people just like living in the hood. That's why they in the hood. Mm. You know, that, that's that's not what happened. You know, these people were were forced into these communities. They were they weren't able to buy properties anywhere else. They had to be they had to be packed into these projects. And not only were they packed into these projects, they had to pay more for these projects than white people who lived in bigger suburban houses. Couple with that, it's like you can't even afford to save to buy a house because you're you don't have any leftover funds because you're always putting that money into your your rent. You don't have time to look at your kids because you're 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 working double shifts just to pay the rent, along with having to share your space with hella people just to be able to pay the rent. The factory just closed down factory just closed down it's a new drug in your community it can make you a lot of money or it can help relieve you of the symptoms of of being in poverty and not being able to take care of your family so it's it's definitely um it's definitely a conversation that uh that definitely made made me mad and i'm excited to to learn more about about these things because people need to be educated 100 percent on, on this stuff and I really want to talk about like why 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 is voting Democrat so instilled in us Oof. and 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 a lot of times when people say oh voting Democrat oh so you want to be Republican like no that's not what you're advocating for it's just like why why is that why is that so? Why is that push so heavily? Like, what do you think about that? I don't know. I 
I guess it's because um, mm, I'm not sure because even at the the quote unquote height of racism, right, at least in the South, there were Dixiecrats. That was as late as the '60s. Maybe like the early seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do want to point out. Uh, we talked about this in Dr. Midmas's class. Strom Thurmond, one of the most racist senators in the history of this country, and one of the longest tenures. I think he served in the Senate for for forty eight years. It's a long time. Some something ridiculously long. People's best friends with Joe Biden. A lot of people don't know, you know, like you, you see Joe, you know, if if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. But he was best friends with one of the most racist people to ever grace the U.S. Capitol building. So I just wanted to highlight that. But continue with you. <laughs> uh, wait, he was best friends with him, and he, and he spoke at his eulogy. All right, <laughs> now you can talk. Yeah, that was a, that was an important piece to fit in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I. I honestly am not sure. I, I can sp- I can speak for myself. Um, like I was never really towards one side or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me because I haven't done much, I guess, research into it. Um, the reasoning behind it doesn't make sense to me. But I guess if I had to, if I had to say, I would say conservatives um, and Republicans usually have a more brash way of dismissing black issues mm. usually by pretending they don't exist or like directly exacerbating that's actually that might be the reason why when you talk about the war on drugs which was not a war on drugs it was a war on black people but um, I think that's what we're that's what's propelled us to be free votes for the Democrats, I would assume. Right. It's 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 two two arms because although you have you have one arm that, that that openly does not like you, but then you have another arm that that brings you in and still allows you to participate in the system when, when you aren't really benefiting as much. Um, I think one of the biggest one of the biggest arguments that people would say is like, oh my God, like black middle class and so many black people are successful but like I, I, I really don't think a lot of people understand how many black people are in poverty yeah you know and I think one of the biggest things is people will say like oh just just pick up your bootstraps like just work work harder um I think people really underplay the role of environment when it comes to the when it comes to your situation like people people don't just sit around and just get new ideas and like, oh, I want to change my life. 
if if you're if you're in a situation to where to where you are to where those, those ideas aren't even being brought up and, and you're just trying to get through day to day for the past three, four, five generations. Yes. Not only are it gonna be hard to get out of that, you know, you don't have a lot of people around you who have gotten out of that. So it's very hard to to change that that mindset. I like to bring up the example of um in in Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill, he makes a claim that ninety eight percent of people are are drifters, and a, a drifter is somebody who just kind of goes along with the with the rest of the society and doesn't try to make any any I wouldn't say any difference, but but just goes along with, with what everybody else is doing. Um, it isn't really thinking for themselves, isn't critically thinking. And that's ninety eight percent of people. I like to look at look at look at that number in like smaller increments just from the standpoint of like, all right, ninety eight percent of the people are like that in society. Because you gotta think, most Americans aren't really thinking about aren't thinking of anything higher for themselves. They just want that normal life of, of just getting getting a job, working, and then retiring, you know. And most people are in that mindset and ideology because that's the environment that you're in you know it's it's this and and, and he said that two only two percent of people really rise above that and i and you can look at the same thing in sports it's like and just with successful people in general like there's always going to be people who are who, who rise out of that environment yeah you know there are going to be people who make it out of the hood like it happens we've seen it but just because that happens does not mean it will happen for everybody, and I think that we need to be aware of of the of the realities of these situations, and I and I really understand the importance of representation um, now, so bigger than I ever did before, because a lot of time, you know, people will be like, oh, like black figure, oh, like like like, like why you why you got to be represented, and it's like a lot of people. I've never really seen somebody like them in positions of influence, power. And I really see that having having people who look like you in positions of influence isn't as inspiring. And it makes you feel like you can do the same thing. You look at these people as if, okay, you look at them as if they're relatable. Because a lot of successful people, if, 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 if you're the son of, of a of a billionaire you know you don't look at that as something that's really all that crazy that's your reality that's that's your life so you look at your dad as somebody who's human you look at him and like okay he's just a regular dude I can do that eventually one day I just gotta gotta be like him and we really undersell the importance of having people who have done great things being around in your direct and immediate life. Because if it's the, you don't mythologize them like that. Yeah. You know, a lot of times we look at successful people as if they are larger than life, bigger than human. When they're a regular human, you know, they're they're just like you and me. They they wake up every morning, you know, they they oversleep. You know, they, they be tired in the day. They have thoughts. They have, you know, anxious thoughts, motivational thoughts. 
Like we're all we're we're all the same, and I think that that is that that is a big um, issue that I don't think is talked about enough. Just the importance of having and seeing when you actually can see it. Once you once you see it, you can believe it, and once you see it, and once you believe it, you can achieve it. There's a reason every kid wants to go to the NBA. Right. We watch sports. This is what we do. That's 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 <laughs> what you that's what you see. That's what we see. That's what you see people like you doing. It's it's just really that simple. And if you don't see a lot of people, um, I don't know, doing doing whatever like like teaching, being an engineer, all that stuff. If you, if you don't see those professions, then you don't think it's really all that possible for you. Yeah. And that's something that I, that I really thought about a lot because. Something that really helps me a lot when I'm trying to become a be- become the best leader and become the best version of myself is reading the autobiographies of, of people who I'm trying to be like in, in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Because actually see reading their thoughts and emotions, it humanizes them. And it makes you, it puts you in the, in the, in the position of, okay, it's like, okay, this was a regular person. He just put that work in, you know. He just, he just, he had the balls to, to do what he wanted to do, say what he wanted to say. Why, why can't I do that? You know. Yeah. That's why I feel like for me, reading autobiographies are very, are very enlightening for me. They, they make me very happy and then they motivate me. Compared to like you know, I gotta sit right there. But the Forty Eight Laws, you know, that's a, that's a pretty depressing book. And it's hard. I I haven't finished it yet, just cause like I, I want to be motivated. You feel me? Yeah. No, I get you hundred percent. Even my uh, my platoon commander from OCS, Captain Galindo, platoon commander Captain Galindo. Mm-hmm. Um, I find myself even like almost a year removed from that environment, like emulating him. Like emulating the way he talks, I mean not the way he talks, the way he walks, and um, just the way he carries himself. Like that man is always squared away, no matter what. He's always got his stuff together. You're never gonna see him jacked up. The most I've ever seen him jacked up was like we were working out in the morning for PT, and like his shirt was untucked. <laughs> that was it. Like you're never gonna see him with not a clean shave. His right. uniform's never gonna be jacked up. None of that stuff. Um, and it's not hard. Like at first you're like, man, like I know he's not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but like he's really good. But it's like at one point in time he was just like me. He was just like me. And so that's like Uncle Larry says, they just do small numbers every day. Small numbers every day. It, it adds up. It adds know, up. Doing, doing small things increases your confidence. And once you have that confidence, you know you can really achieve whatever you want to do. Like, and when you, when you have that confidence, you already believe you are before everybody else knows who you are. So I definitely, I definitely subscribe to that philosophy wholeheartedly. And um, I, I now want to transition into a, another aspect of your upbringing and that is the church okay 
how how has going to church affected affected your life and your beliefs and your sense of community amongst your amongst your I mean, amongst your community? Yeah. Um, I think that's a huge part of who I am. Not only because um, I went to church, I went every Sunday. So my dad was a drummer. Um, my mom was just in the church, she was just a member. But they recently became um, a deacon and deaconess when I was in high school, or at the end of high school. And so that was just an experience for me, going every Sunday, um, Bible class on Wednesdays. And then obviously I went, I went to Catholic school all my life. So we had mass every couple weeks there, you know, praying at the start of every class. Yeah, it was, <laughs> so it was like everywhere I went, it was there. I remember it was that there. Day. Um, yeah, so that's been a huge part of my upbringing. And then like even transitioning into adulthood, like my network of people, like for the most part, most people that I've met that have kind of propelled me to where I am today either came from church or from school with the exception of like my mentor mm. that was it okay do you think there are any like common messages and common things about the people who have helped mentor and raise you from from the church that you know even because you know you went to Catholic so that's definitely different from the church that, that you're going to in your communities yeah but are there any similarities between how they mentor you um well, I'll say I didn't receive like mentoring from anyone in the church at school okay. it was more so like um, the parents of, of my classmates okay. my schoolmates yeah um, you know it was just kind of like you know oh we play sports together we're just gonna be around each other and then as we grow up you know they'll look out for me this and that right um I'm just saying, like, uh, be good to good people. Like, if you're a good person and you're genuine, um, and it shows, like, you're going to have that same energy, like, put back into you. Right. Um, I agree with that 100%. So definitely that. Like, I, honestly, my, my worldview is kind of skewed because of that. Like, I can't really, like, pinpoint, like, Oh, like I had this really, really like racist thing done to me, or like I had this experience that like completely changed my outlook on life. Um, just because the community I grew up in was, I guess, sort of sheltered, but it, it was still reality. It was just, it was just a good reality. It was a really good reality. So. Um, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of shaped me into who I am today. Just because, I guess, for me growing up, like it wasn't doing bad was like hard, right? Like not doing the right thing was just it just seemed like a more cumbersome way to move throughout life. Mm -hmm. So it, at first it was just like I'm gonna do the right thing just because like that's easier to do. But now it's like it's transitioned to I'm gonna do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do, and then like.
like I want to be able to set that example for other people. Like I used to look up to people when I was younger, and now seeing like um, there's a guy, a kid from my church. Um, he kind of looks up to me. He started playing basketball because of me. He saw me playing basketball. That's so, crazy. It's like once you once you like recognize like man, all right, well that I have the torch in my hand now, so I got to make sure I do right by whoever's looking up to me, you know. So they can they can get the world better than I got it, kind of thing. So yeah, play a big part. It's about it's about setting that example and you know being like another another Dr. Garvey um, quote, but something that I have been saying for a while as well is like you got to be the change that you that you want to be that that you want to see in the world, you know, and and how and you got to be. You gotta create that that outcome that you wanna that you wanna see from from others. You know, you you, you wanna see that you wanna see that uh, that little homie do do good. You know, you wanna see him have fun. And I don't know what his dream is, but be the be the best hooper that that he can be. And you know, sometimes it's really all that simple. I forget hoop, man. Just be the best person. Be the best person. Yeah. You know, like that's that's definitely. A foundational aspect and something that I definitely feel like we're missing in society and I wanted to kind of talk about you know our society definitely becoming a lot more secular why do you think people are are starting to move away from the church now as opposed to in the past mm, it's easy uh, it's easy just churches as we move into like this this postmodern society um, structure and, and discipline and just rules are just have a negative connotation mm-hmm. and they're seen as limiting rather than freeing like discipline to the undisciplined person is like oh oh my gosh it feels like a chain but like to the disciplined Facts. person it's like this is like what makes me who I am this allows me to do other things, um, so I think that's a big part of it, um, and then also just the economic situation. Like, uh, it's gotten progressively worse in in the past. In the past, I don't know, fifty years. And then you couple that with like the political polarity of America and the world at large, I guess I'd say. Um, it's almost like activism is a new religion for a lot of people, especially mm. our age. Mm. Like, yeah, that. And then also, that's very interesting kind of going back to the, the discipline bit for some people it's people they'll say like oh I'm I'm spiritual but I'm not religious um, but then like there's no you don't see like any you can't at least from the outside looking in you can't like 
speak to any development that that person is actually fostering. It's more like they want the the quote unquote benefits of religion, but like they don't want to be held to the same constraints and rules. Mm. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I definitely yeah definitely feel like the the component of following the rules is hard for a lot of people, especially like in our modern age where you kind of get so many different ideas and perspectives. It's kind of hard to to stick to stick to one one way of of knowing it and one way of doing. That's definitely that's very interesting and um. It really, and I, that's kind of what we were talking about yesterday, kind of, that's really a reason why a lot of people are kind of losing confidence in religion, just because the whole aspect of, of following, of following rules and disciplines, like, do you, do you think that there's anything that the, that the church could improve upon to, to help combat this, this issue? Um, oof. first thing that comes to my mind would just be accountability mm-hmm. um, like just practicing what you're preaching um, so that would be one but also like preaching what's what's in the Bible what's in the word of God like I'm not gonna go there today I'm not gonna do it today but uh, yeah it's just like there's there's no continuity between different churches like not even talking about like different uh, denominations like some churches are traditional some churches have like gay pastors right like there's no everybody's kind of doing everything Um, there has to be a standard set and then held Um, and then also I think the church should re- help strive to reach people economically. Um, and this is why, I mean, the, however you feel about the Catholic Church, I mean, it's really kind of ingenious what they've done um, with Catholic schools. Because you think like, okay, there's a Catholic school in every, uh, we call them parishes, we don't call them counties. In Louisiana, mm-hmm. but uh, like for every parish or for every you know locality, there's a Catholic school and there's a church to accompany it. So you're kind of setting up your own like economic cycle. Like, okay, my kids go to school here, we go to church here on Sunday. Um, and then from that, you get all of those kind of jobs and economic opportunities, things like that. Um, so I think if they if they make people economically, that would help. Um, just just a return to like just doing. I feel like sometimes, especially today, people just get caught up in just saying stuff mm-hmm. like, "Oh, you know." I'm a Christian, I do this, I'm a good person. But it's like, 
can somebody else tell that? Like, can somebody from the outside look at him and be like, oh, like, there's something different about him from the crowd? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, my like, mind's wandering because it's, it's such a complicated answer. But yeah. Like, like what, are you, what are you doing for others? Like, like, for real? Yeah, like, what are you And, and instead of just saying you're, you're a good person, like, what does is, what is a good person entail? Like, are you, are you kind to others? Are you... I, even something as simple as just saying hi to people, yeah. you know, just being being a good spirit, you know, fostering a sense of community. Yeah, you know, I see a lot of people complain about how they don't have friends, but are are you actually a friendly person, or do you just internally feel that you're a friendly person? You know, and it's not easy. It's not easy, but it goes back to our conversation earlier. It's like holding holding people for holding people accountable for things that they said they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So. And then, like, if you're not holding yourself accountable as the church, like, how can you hold others accountable? Right. Right. And that's really, um, it's really interesting. You got me thinking, like, there are really Catholic schools everywhere. Catholic schools everywhere. Bro, they be making bread. Think about the real estate and just, like, if you're paying tuition for the school, that's money for the school, then you're giving ties to the church. Whatever the church doesn't use goes right back into the school. That is actually insane. I went to Catholic school for for fourteen years of my life. Fourteen years, and there were plenty of Catholic, Catholic Catholic high schools and Catholic elementary schools, and you have Catholic colleges as well. Yep. And that that's just that's in the United States, and then you have all that wealth in the Vatican. That just uh, sitting in the uh, sitting at the bottom of it, like bro, I've been to the Vatican before. Like that stuff is crazy, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go. I need to go. That stuff is crazy. Yeah, they got a lot of got a lot of wealth. They do, and I, I actually, I heard where that started from. Oh, it started from integration. What did the Catholic schools like early, early on? Um. They want, and this was like before the 60s, this was way before that. Like, uh, and the Catholics needed a place that like, they could rely on and they could teach their own children what they wanted. They wanted to keep like the Catholic tradition alive. Mm. And so, in order when to- When was that? That was in the 60s? No, this was, this was before. Um, I can't remember what exactly happened. Oh my gosh. But, uh, yeah, basically, like, Protestant and just, like, non-denominational, non-denominational faiths, like, we just had schools. And then the Catholics were like, well, we need schools of our own. And then you couple that with, like, um, evangelism and, like, trying to spread the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And then you get schools. So I, I can't remember. It started with one specific school. And then it just kind of spread. And, like, the idea was to have a Catholic school in every locality mm. that's very interesting because you have me when you say integration I think like the 1960s and I kind of also think about how I think in 1962 early 1960s they they started reading and in Catholic churches they used to only speak in Latin but they 
changed. I'm pretty sure they they changed the English to kind of keep the keep the tradition alive. Mm-hmm. A lot of people aren't. A lot of people like like don't are not fluent like, are not fluent in Latin, <laughs> bro. Yeah, yeah, that's a really old language, and it's kind of crazy because that's really how they used to like really manipulate and trick a lot of people. Because a lot of people did not know Latin mm-hmm. in the past. Really got me thinking back to um, like serfdom and and all that stuff. Just because I don't know, man. The, the Catholic Church has has exploited a lot of people. Yes, it has. Spoiled a lot of people. I was really thinking about um, my my advanced public speaking class. I was blessed to take uh, Dr. Richard Wright, and he was just talking about how does the this human progress really does 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 time moving forward really mean human progress? Because the 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 dark ages of humanity, or European humanity, were damn near a thousand years. That was just a period of just barbarism and, and manipulation. Like the Catholic Church had ninety percent of the population subscribing to that level of poverty and 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 served them again just to just and they had them believing that it was just that that was the will of God. Yeah. God wanted them to be in that position. While the ten percent just reaping all that wealth could you imagine bro like 90% of the population is giving most of their wealth to the top 10% like that is crazy for for hundreds of years they still have that wealth that is actually crazy to me and kind of going back to the to the topic of human progress it took, it took Europeans like the hundreds, hundreds of years to kind of rediscover um, the ways of the of the ancient Greeks and and the philosophies that that they were talking about. Even though, uh, as as I know now, pretty much all of their philosophy came from the ancient Egyptians. Comet. Yes. <laughs> from, from and um, it's just very interesting because a lot of people don't don't really know that like they they were studying in ancient Egypt like they were they were studying there they they would they would probably be so disgraced at 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 white people today to to say that Africans have never had philosophy or history. Oh, man. And to say all that because they were like, what? Like we, we learned from them. They were our teachers. You know, Plato, Aristotle, like they, they, they was all hanging with the Egyptians. That begs the question: like, when did the shift happen? Like, when did it turn from like eating game and like having a certain level of appreciation and respect for African culture to like just exploiting? I, I think it comes from come from the disconnect of from that civilization because the ancient Greeks were I mean I'm not even sure like when when they were in their prime but it was it was a long time ago and the Europeans kind of had to rediscover those those views and stuff like that and like how 
and like how information kind of always goes through this progress uh, process of when you dig up new things you 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 can dig up the text but you lack context you, you don't you don't really think how they thought because you know you, you're not you're not always aware of where they got that information from and you can take bits and pieces to benefit yourself you know so it's like yeah we're we're inspired by by the ancient Greeks and all their philosophers but we don't really care that like where they got it from but those, those are our ancestors you know and coupled with also the exploitation and the, and the capitalism that was that was growing in the 15 and 1600s they were they were exploiting African peoples and like all um, efforts of of progress in the name of humanity or conquest you, you need a rationale for it this is true you know you you need and humans individually and collectively we, we need a rationale for, for what we're doing the United States couldn't just invade all these countries and exploit all these countries if they didn't have a rationale for it that they could tell the American public whether they're lying or not this reminds me of Adolf Hitler. Of uh, him blaming the Jews mm-hmm. for Germany's struggles after World War One, or because of World War One. Uh, I might to go out. I might be going to left field. I'm, I'm making sure you don't your point first. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. Come back to that. But I was about to say that they needed a rationale to exploit. The Africans and enslave them and make them look and look at them as less than human mm-hmm. um, my my teacher um, for my my black philosophy my black philosophy religion and ritual class dr. Beatty was saying that he looks at the word tribe as a white supremacist word because the word tribe insinuates lack of civilization and it was placed on Africans to make them look primitive yeah. and that they weren't um, doing anything. That's why he says whenever whenever he has like people from from Nigeria and they mention which which group of people they come from, he doesn't he says you're not gonna use the word tribe in here. You're not gonna say Yoruba tribe or or Igbo tribe, you know, you can say I'm 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 Yoruba, you know, because that word in itself makes these cultures and civilizations look like they didn't have culture and that they didn't have philosophy you know just because it's not your way of knowing doesn't mean that it is not legit and that it doesn't have value you know so the Europeans needed that rationale to 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 invade and colonize and do all that barbaric stuff like we were talking about I think you had I think you sent me the video of like King Leopold, and, yeah. and and how and how they was cutting off the hands of Africans, and then selling them as souvenirs. Well, that's some evil, sick, demented stuff, bro. And then selling chocolate hands as well. Chocolate selling chocolate hands, like as a delicacy. It's crazy. And and it's crazy because in class the other day I had learned that there was a man named named Sam Hose in Atlanta. In about I think 1906 
early 1900s, um, he he had killed his his boss's wife because you know that 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 whole system of sharecropping was very exploitative, and they used to they used to really be exploiting black people, you know, not not teaching them how to read and 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 write so they could pay them pennies on the dollar for for basically basically new slavery, you yeah. know. So but like and it's crazy, like my, my great grandfather was a was was a sharecropper and he didn't know how to read until the day he died. Yeah. You know? And I didn't I didn't learn that until like last week. You know, but he grew up in Arkansas and you know he had to like they wasn't teaching him that stuff, but kind of went to the point about Sam Hose, like eventually he tried to he tried to flee town and and it's crazy, uh, Dr. Myers was saying that a lot of a lot of black people from from like western and northern cities have like stories of people in their family who got in trouble with a with a white man or white person and had to and had to leave <laughs> leave and go up and go up north or west. That's that's how that's how my hungry great grandfather actually got to Oakland. <laughs> which 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 is crazy but um he he he, he was being exploited by by the workers and he, and he got tired of it and he was just fed up and i i don't, I don't know i don't know if, if he killed the wife or his boss but he killed somebody and he tried to flee town mm-hmm. and he got lynched and they took apart his body and they sold it like they cut it up after? Yes. Oh, and I saw that souvenirs. And W.B. Du Bois was actually walking. He walked in the store. And he saw his knuckles sitting outside in the jar. Which is which is just crazy. And I'm bringing up that point to just talk about, like, the, the barbarism of those white people in the past. We are not that far removed. We are not that far removed. You know what I'm saying? Dr. Julius Garvey, his father was Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey made him. And Marcus Garvey literally lived through that era. We are not, we are only so many lifetimes away from from that barbarism. And then people will act like that stuff does that stuff doesn't have traumatic effects on our people. Uh, it, it it all it all builds up and it's it's not like things things just don't happen. You know, and we talk about King King Leopold and, and all that colonization and, and brutalization. It's just it's just horrible. But then throughout history we've been painted as as the animals. We we've been painted as the ones who 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 lack ethics and have no philosophy. Yeah. You know, it's it's very, very, very sad and interesting rabbit hole. But what are you about to say about Hitler? Um, no, it just makes me wonder, like, it was so easy for him to blame the Jews, and it's like, what, what makes black people believe that, like, we won't be the subject of, like, blame for a situation that goes awry? Because that's already our culture, that's already our stereotype. So it's like we're comfortable. Yeah, we're comfortable. We're comfortable. And the next, I guess you can say, fascist movement is coming. 
The, my, my professor, Dr. Myers, you know, yeah. have you seen Dr. Myers live yeah. this week? He was saying fascism is here. It, it's coming. It's it's coming for sure. It's it's here, but it's 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 kind of hidden, if you will. But it's it's definitely coming, and it's like when it does come, who are they gonna blame? Who are they most likely to blame? So that's that's why honestly it's it's really important for us to arm ourselves as well. Um, Facts. I mean, really, that's where the that's where gun control came from. Was trying to not let allow black people to have weapons. Black people to have weapons. You know, it's crazy. California wanted to strict this states when it comes to gun laws. I think we talked about this in the first podcast you were in. Um, I think so. Yeah, like the 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 NRA and all the organizations they was quick to pass the gun laws when when the Panthers went from Oakland to Sacramento it was at the it was at the capital of California, and they was like, like give us what we want. Yeah, they were scared. That, that second Second Amendment, you know, it, it's just all cool until we start using it. And there's a reason for that. I, I've, I've learned through my study of history that you always want to you always want to do or study what they tell you not to do. Because it's like, why are they telling you not to do it? You know, they want us to not arm ourselves. They want us to not be ready because, like, that movement is coming. And they'll be quick to blame us for that stuff. They'll, they'll be quick. They will be quick. All them, all them poor white people, all them white people in general, like, they're going to be quick to blame us for a lot of the issues that, that, are, that are coming. So we have to be ready for that. And that is, like, I'm glad you brought up that point about the Jews because after that, they realized that, all right, we can't really play into that assimilation stuff anymore and, and give up our culture. Because it, it hadn't worked, for, it didn't work for them then. And I remember uh, I read that they also tried to assimilate in the 15, 1600s mm-hmm. with the rest of the European population. And then they got ostracized and blamed. And so that kind of made, created like a cultural reset for them. And I see a parallel with that within black people. Because <laughs> I remember when I was reading the autobiography of, of Malcolm X. I don't remember what made me come to this conclusion, but I remember it very well. I came to the realization that things are not gonna change for black people in America, unfortunately, unless something tragic, unbelievably tragic happens. That will force us to come together and realize that it's really us against this state, you know? It's gonna be it's gonna be a traumatic event because the Jews they had to they had to endure the Holocaust for that you know it's it's unfortunate that it had to happen that way but we see the cohesion that the community has today mm-hmm. and how they teach their culture to their youth they give their youth political education they teach them how to work together and I think that we could have. We could do the same things, but we don't see the need to right now. Yeah, unfortunately. You know, it's the same reason why black people were able to build communities after slavery. Because we, because we had seen, all right, they, they, they're not messing with us. We're going to build our own stuff. We're going to build Tulsa. We're going to build Wilmington. 
Rosewood, Thibodeau, all all those all those communities in like Central Avenue, Florida, Fillmore District, San Francisco, like the list goes on and on. Harlem, New York, you know, like yeah, you you can go on and on about communities that are created out of necessity, but we don't have that necessity anymore. And slavery was so long ago for us that we don't have that collective pain and memory of it to want to create. We think shit is sweet now. We think shit is sweet as fuck, bro. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's it's really gonna take something something tragic to happen. And it's it's not and I'm not talking about no 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 like Black Lives Matter, one black person gets killed by the cops type thing. I'm talking about a mass event. Something that affects all of us. That makes us really okay, damn. Because something like that lasts in the memory of everybody and creates a sustained movement. You know? So it's really um it's it's really I don't know what it's gonna take, but it has to happen. And when you think of self determination and things of that ilk. We met some Black Panthers this week. We did. What was that experience like for you, Timmy? I'm talking, I'm talking about some, some OG Black Panthers who was really in that fight in the 60s and 70s. Surreal, for sure. Because uh, I never, you, you had mentioned it to me. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go. So I'm like, I'm like okay, so these are just going to be like some Black Panthers, you know, like just members. But these were like, Pioneers, like black women, black women, pioneers. Like one of the panelists, Erica Huggins, lost her husband. She met her husband actually through the Black Panther Party. They were uh, kind of on the same tip and then got affiliated with the party. He actually died like a year or two into them being affiliated. Wow. And like she's still preaching the same message. After all that, same message, bro. Like, she's like a real fighter, a real fighter. Like, that was so inspiring to to see them talk. Cause those are people who have actually lived through this stuff. They and they memories when they was up there talking. Like when they was talking about, they was speaking from experience, from what they could see in their brain. Yeah. Something actually, when I was researching um, yesterday, did you know that like. Almost two thirds of Black Panthers were women. I didn't. I f- I feel like I, I've heard I've heard that before. I've heard that like a lot of them were women. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's crazy, bro. Cause it's always like the militaristic wing that's always presented and mm-hmm. put up front. Yep. It's just always it's always black dudes with afros. Yeah. Who's uh, who's presented to us? Yeah, but it's so much more than that. And I I knew it was so much more, but like actually hearing it from somebody who was in it. That meant so much more. Right. And it always does, you know. And we have to take advantage and cherish those people while they're still around. Yeah. Because those are those are important people that we can take inspiration from. And it's just so unfortunate that, you know, governmental forces like the FBI really disbanded and, and did everything they could to destroy those organizations. We call them the, the biggest national internal security threat. Yeah, I, I was gonna say I think that's been the biggest shift for me 
over the past several years has been like how I view government or the government. How did you view the government before? Not as benevolent, but just just neutral, like not good or bad, not objectively good or bad, but definitely you're not like calculated, mm -hmm. you know, because you know, government's job is to protect its citizens from foreign, from threats foreign and domestic, but it's like, why would a government do harm to its own citizens? Right. That doesn't make sense. So, I don't know if I brought this up on the podcast before, but what was the um, Operation Norwood? Operation Northwood. Northwood? Yeah. Um, when 1962, they, the United States government, I think, I, I don't, I don't want to get the names mixed up, but somebody really high up in the, in the defense um, industry said that, he, well, he, he proposed a plan to kill, kill American civilians in Florida and blame it on the Cubans. And with that, they would be a catalyst to start World War Three and invade Cuba. Yeah. And it got to the t got to the top of the government, got to John F. Kennedy, and he, he denied it. And he fired that the the Secretary of Defense. I'm pretty sure for that. And things like that. And, so and Kennedy was shot shortly after that. Yep. Yep. Things like that really make me think because when I was really studying, I was studying the 1960s a lot this past summer, and and it, it gave me a, definitely a more holistic view of John Kennedy. You know, because Kennedy, he was actually he was actually a good man. Yeah, he was actually a good man trying to bring bring more change, and and he got more radical in his per, uh, radical from the from the standpoint of the United States. So like in, in his in his views on. On helping, on helping black people, and just being more open to like civil rights legislation. Because I, when I was reading the, auto, the autobiography of Martin Luther King, Jr., he says that Kennedy was the, it was definitely like very indifferent at first and definitely very performative. But eventually, I think him and him and um, Kennedy and King, you know, they they sat down and had lunch together, and stuff like that. And and King said he gets sense, sense that Kennedy was very sincere. And something that I also found really interesting from that part of the book, because he talked about Richard Nixon as well. Because for those who don't know, Kennedy and Nixon ran against each other in the election of 1960. Um, Nixon was the vice president of Dwight Eisenhower, who was stepping down. Well, not, not stepping down, but obviously his terms were up. And he said that he said that him and Nixon were friends. Interesting. And him and Nixon, it was pretty cool. And, and and he seemed and he said like Nixon seemed pretty sympathetic to the problems of the black man, which is so crazy to see how nine years later, and throughout Nixon's administration, how much harm he did for black people. But now it's like with the knowledge we have, like Nixon might have just been the figurehead. That's 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 what I'm about to say. <laughs> that's what, that's what I was thinking too. Like, just a figurehead yeah. because I mean how he got elected was because of the white backlash and 
white people being fed up with the civil rights movement and and just all this all of the all of the radical change that was occurring in the nineteen sixties. So he was definitely for fulfilling an, an agenda and kind of seemed like he was just trying to that's that's how he that was his way of getting into power. And he might not have been the one pulling strings. Right. He might not have been the one pulling strings. And it's um it's very interesting kind of just going back to the whole like Kennedy point of just how how this government is just so it's just so evil it really kind of makes me think if the United States was willing to to do something like that there have been plenty of men far worse than Kennedy to hold that office since then and there are men who was in a who if they were in a different position would have signed off on that you know it makes me think about other tragedies that have occurred like even even not 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 even trying to get on the conspiracy stuff but 911 bro like Who's, how, how do we know that the United States really didn't, like, really sacrifice all them lives as an excuse to go to the Middle East and, and get all that, get, get all that, all that black gold? I guess we'll never know. Like, we'll, we will never know, but I wouldn't put it past this country, bro, like, like real shit, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'd put nothing past this damn nation. I, I'd put, put nothing past. Yeah, I guess we'll. Past it, bro. Like, oh man, it's. But then it's like, okay, well, well, people don't really even have the knowledge of this stuff. But it's like, once you do, like, so why would you trust this government to like protect you in a sense? Like, we need our own police forces. We need our own individual arms. So that's the only way you can assert yourself against this tyrannical government. Like mm-hmm. the formula hasn't changed. For every tyrannical government, the first step has always been, yeah, a cultural shift, but it's always been taking their weapons away first. When rubber meets the road, they're gonna try and disarm you. They're gonna try and disarm you. And that kinda like goes into like a whole other conversation about um gun control and like mass shootings and stuff like that. Cause I don't know, bro, like so if you if you disagree with me, like please give me like like some arguments against it, but like, cause I I'm, I don't we obviously nobody has the answers for 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 the mass shootings that are occurring in our country, but like I feel like people kind of look away from from the bigger issues when it comes to why they're occurring. They're occurring. People are unhappy. Like people are people are in distress. Like why would you want to go? kill 20 people. You know, I think those are the those are the issues that we need to start addressing in this country as opposed to just taking away all the weapons. And and I and I think that kind of goes into the whole mind frame of like we think this country is is holistic and that they care. So if they take away our guns like they're not going to do nothing. They have our best interest at heart. Yeah. You know, and you 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 let the government monopolize protection when you do that. And we know from the government, for with our knowledge, like, why would you trust them? <laughs> right, exactly. And I, and I think a lot of people oh, really, goodness. really don't, really don't understand 
how much stuff the government has done. Like, people really, if people understood, they would understand. They would understand. Yeah, they would understand if they, if they knew how much stuff the government has really done to, to, to suppress groups of people, not only in this country, but, but worldwide. Yeah. You know, all the immigration issues that we have, people flooding and coming to this country, a lot of them are flooding in because of things that the United States has done in their home countries. I think uh, Dr. Carr said in class the other day, the sociologists called this the boomerang effect. What you what you do in in that homeland, like in in the homelands of others, like they're gonna be at your doorstep eventually. Cause since you have the power to do all that stuff to to their countries, they're gonna try to go to your country for economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the whole thing that I was that I was kind of going to when it comes to the gun control argument, like people being unhappy. Like it's more than just unhappiness, like there's like a sense of despair that 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 a lot of Americans are feeling, you know, especially particularly men, you know. Oof. You know, like like so many men are are, are, are sexless, um, are aren't getting respect from, from people in their lives, um, feel feel hopeless, along with the advent of technology, that kind of that make people more disconnected than ever from from others and your community. People not talking as much. And I really don't know how you solve them problems along with the with the wealth gap increasing. Yeah. And all the and all the things you need just to make money now. Just just to get a job. And and I'm not excusing the people who do that stuff, but it's important to understand why these things happen. So so adequate solutions to these problems can be presented and suggested instead of just saying oh take away all the guns what were your thoughts on uh, the defund the police day um when it was happening I mean I kind of just like went along with it because you know it was a popular thing like <laughs> defund the police you know all that but like ah, it's a very very interesting conversation because I do believe that It's it's it's, cold. it's so crazy because like the state that we exist in right now, mm-hmm. America has created the state in which you need more police in communities. So it's it's hard to take away that money because you kind of need some of some of these forces in communities because because of, you know of of the crime and unrest and. Not, not, not unrest, but just like just crime and just overall, all those factors in general. But like, those crimes are happening because of, or because of poverty. You're you're not seeing you're not seeing like rich people like doing stuff like that and harming people to get money. Like those acts come out of desperation, and that's that's a human thing. When you're desperate, you're gonna do crazy stuff. That's like it's been like it's like all of human history. Specifically violent. Specifically violent. Yeah. You're gonna rationalize violence if, if 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 you look at it as like if I don't do this, I'm not gonna survive. You know. Yeah. So the whole defund the police thing is like in the era of growing in economic inequality, along with COVID happening in that time period, with that gap growing even more. It's um, it's a very interesting uh, 
problem. I do think that more money should be put into social programs to actually um, alleviate and just kind of help people get out of the situations that they face. Because I believe that your mindset can change a lot of things within your life. And changing your mindset can, can set forth um, a positive domino effect in which you keep improving and improving. But like I was saying earlier, if you're not in the environment, the environment to where you feel like you can make those changes, then you're not going to do them. So I, the whole defund the police thing is kind of like, it's kind of like hyperbole, in the sense of just you, you just want. It's like so something something that that makes people get up and want to empathize with it. And and when and when you have slogans like that, it also draws critics as well because it's like, why are we going to defund the police? Because I think people see defund the police as like. A lot of people, a lot of critics saw it as like taking away all the money from the police. Like like defund them completely. When it's when it was really just a reallocation of resources to put to actually because like policing is policing isn't really it's not helping people. Like from it's it's not stopping crime. It's not stopping crime from happening. Like, like the, the police have never been a deterrent to to stopping crime. They they go and protect the property after and arrest the people after, but in actually stopping it, they're not really. I mean, obviously, I mean there have been times when the police have like stopped things from happening, but just so the overall sense of the crime that you kind of speak of is kind of it's not really stopping it. It's definitely just like deeper. Deeper seated issues that that a lot of time relate back to money. Um, what what did you think of defund the police? That was funny. Um, at the time, I didn't have the the economic context, right? But um, like Young Ripper said, um, yeah, let's defund the police. When you tell that to a libertarian, like you're threatening us with a good time, like you want smaller government, sure. Because <laughs> like even like I know people say police spawned from slave patrols, which sure, but that's not how the police started. Um, they essentially started like a a neighborhood watch, if you will. Like people would have these. What's today known as police, they would have these organizations or groups of people that would protect the locality. Right. Um, so that's really where it started from. But, yeah, I think if, if people want to defund the police, I say, let's defund the police and let's just do it all the way. Let's do it all the way. <laughs> and then repeal all the gun laws. Mm. That would that would be anarchy. <laughs> that would be anarchy. No, I, I don't think so. You don't think so? I don't think so because people, a lot of people say that like if you repeal gun laws, it would just be like GTA Five. <laughs> but no, an armed society is a safe one. Hey, you know it, it does it does bring like the argument because like initially you think oh, everybody got a gun. It's like but if everybody has a gun, or you don't know who has a gun, it's usually. Well, at least tactically, it makes sense to not show what you're carrying. Right. 
So it's like, you walk into a grocery store, you don't know who got what, who has what training, you know. Why would I try and shoot up a grocery store? Especially if it's not in my community. That's true. But what about the people who who shoot up schools and things like that? Who know they're gonna die? Like like they like they 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 know that they are doing this as a last resort. Like I I know I'm not gonna go on the run and hide. They know I'm about to shoot all these people and I'm going to die. I'm going to get shot. This is my last this is my last hurrah. I think, well, for one, I would say that's a mental health issue, for one, um, at least in some cases, but also, and I don't want this to sound callous, but that's, if we, if we continue to protect schools in the same manner that we do, uh, matter of fact, I'll, I'll pivot, I'll pivot, I'll say, if schools were worth protecting, which I think, and we're talking about life of children, I think that's worth protecting. Like, they would have the same level of security um, as a bank. Wow. Um, like, we protect our money. Wow. You know? Wow. In the many ways that we do a bank. Wow. But a school is just a school on top of it being. Uh, a gun-free zone. That's really a part of the reason why um, that's, that's like a, a hotbed or a hotspot. Because going back to the, if everybody's armed, then you know you don't know what to do. Like if, if I know I'm going into a space where it's a gun-free zone, nobody's gonna have a, a firearm on them. I have complete fire superiority until the authorities arrive. Like there's no security on campus. There's no, especially not armed security in most cases. Right, right. So it's like you basically have free range. Um, I forgot what I was gonna say. Oh, that's kind of like even if we did repeal all the gun laws, like all the states had constitutional carry, like there's still gonna be mass shootings. Um, that's that's just an inherent price of freedom. Right. So it's like, do you do you want a free society, or do you with with risk, or do you just want like an unfree society, but there's no risk? Mm. It's like, what do you what do you value more? You value value shelter or freedom? You value shelter and freedom. And then you have to evaluate like who's going to provide that shelter. You want the government providing that shelter? The United States government, <laughs> the same one that did Operation Northwood, the same one, you I know, like, bro, like that's why, like, I really, so, so many people were so easy, like, to just go along with a lot of the COVID stuff. Kind of really, kind of irked me because, like, y'all, it would be the same people who cry all this stuff about how bad the government is and all that stuff and. Acknowledging all its faults, but but then but then when that vaccine came and all that protocol came out, now the government got hurt us. It was that hard. Man, I got vilified. My parents, man, and then just for thinking about it, like, just for like when you get the vaccine, 
I'm not getting the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you're not getting the vaccine? It's like I'm not. I'm looking. I'm looking at everything as it's happening, and I'm watching. I was. That's when I was watching Young Ripper the most. I don't watch him as much anymore. But um, yeah, I was just following what he was saying. Everything he was saying was logical. It was factual. Like Anthony Fauci was saying, like, oh, natural. Um, what you call it? Natural immunity is the best immunity. And now, you need a vaccine to get immunity now. You can't get COVID with the vaccine. And then they walk that back because people got COVID after the vaccine. <laughs> bro, really got, really got capped too, bro. Right. And like, bro, like, like people knew, like, I mean, it sucks to say, like, I'm, I'm vaccinated so I could come back to school. Yeah. And I, I would not have gotten that damn vaccine, bro. If I didn't need it for school, actually the military made me get, well, it makes sense because it's the government. But right, right. Those two, if it wasn't for those two things, I wouldn't have got vaccinated. Like, that stuff is actually insane, bro. It's, it's, it's crazy. I just wish, um, I wish people would just kind of I mean, I'm not calling people stupid, but just kind of actually, like, critically think about this stuff. Now, there was, there was definitely a level of shame. Like, we... Like, it was definitely a shame. We shamed ourselves into being lab rats. We, we shamed ourselves, bro. And at the end of the day, humans are social creatures, social animals, so... Shame, shame is very um, big on how on the decisions that we make and what we do or don't do with our lives. Because you're afraid of what people are going to say. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the biggest things when it comes to leadership and something that that leaders ignore that I'm trying to manifest and create within my own life. You know, not caring what, what others think of what I do. Yeah. It's not easy, bro. So everybody has their own philosophy, so if you can as long as you have a reason why, hey, that's your reason why. Exactly. Okay. And then like you have you have people like with wife and kids or a family to support it's like their job tell me you have to get the vaccine you get fired and people being okay with that people like encouraging that behavior people being okay with it <laughs> it's just it's crazy and then and now we act like it don't happen it never happened <laughs> we act like it never happened for a, a disease with less than a one percent fatality rate but it was like zero point Something. Yeah, less than one percent, and and the the usual profile of the typical person that it killed was like somebody with a pre-existing condition, um, people who are obese, or people who are just elderly. That was like the most common denominator. Was really obesity, honestly. Um, I remember I posted that on Twitter one time and people if people were getting mad at me oh man it's the truth and so we did that for a disease with that low of a death rate what if it was 10% I knew you what if that. it was 20% we, we did that for that what if it was more it's crazy COVID COVID was an interesting time we Howard definitely could have allowed us to come back to school sophomore year. Bro. Oh. I that's crazy. 
It's crazy. Howard but definitely could have allowed us to come back. They could have allowed us to come back, but we get money from the federal government. Yep. So could they have? They they could have allowed us to, but they could have allowed us to. And this is so interesting because I really um, COVID is just such a bittersweet moment because I actually loved the time that I was at home for. When I started working on my job, I made a lot of friends. I met a lot of people, and I really connected a lot more with my seat than, than I had than I had previous opportunities to do. And I just changed myself. Like, but I always, I always think like, what if? What if? Uh, about this college experience? Like, what if? We made the most of what we had. We did. We did. Well, what, if? <laughs> what if? What if? What if, bro? It's crazy. I think I'm about to wrap this episode up. I gotta have an event to attend soon. So, this is a good episode. It was like two hours. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of, that's how long I expected it to be. Ah, man. Yeah, this was good. Yeah. Well, we definitely have to record another one whenever, whenever a new event or topic of discussion arises. So, until then. We will we will see you guys and as we we always say. Oh, well, do you have any closing any closing remarks? Any closing remarks? Uh on your on your first solo episode. Hmm. I guess I'd say to be the person that you want to be, you, you have to do things that you've never done before. That's what I've got to say. I like that. That's the word. Uh, That's the word. (laughs) That's the word. That was good. And as we like to say, as long as y'all show love, we'll stay consistent. Appreciate y'all. And uh, if you're listening, leave a review, leave a comment, follow the Instagram page, the Black Lotus Podcast. We got fire content over there, so just check us out. We appreciate y'all, man. Keep going.